You're listening to Semper Reform on the Radio, where the Bible alone and the Bible in its entirety is applied to all of life. There are many people who do not want to hear the truth because it will shake up the false hope they have that they're going into heaven when indeed they are not. Christ is our King. Scripture is our law. Scripture and the laws of our country now collide head on. Now, just to make it clear, we don't bow down to Caesar. So what does Paul do when he gets his big shot at the Areopagus? Watch him. Now, not only has Paul not compromised in order to get here, but once he's here, he says, your worldview is wrong, your philosophy is wrong, it's not just wrong, it's an affront to God, you ought to know better, you're in sin. But the good news is, God has extended to you an opportunity to repent. Well, thank you again, everybody, for joining us. Uh, my name is Tim Shaughnessy. I am one of the co-hosts of this podcast, which we have named Semper Reformanda Radio. And I'm here in the studio with... I, I always think that's funny when I say in the studio, because I'm actually just in my garage. <laughs> it sounds better when I say in the studio. Uh, but nonetheless, I'm, I'm here with uh, my other two co-hosts. Uh, that would be Carlos Montijo, who uh, is here with me in El Paso, Texas. And then we have our, our newest co-host is uh, Owen Pond, who is a missionary in Bulgaria. And uh, I've talked a little bit about that in the other podcasts, uh, the previous one. So uh, for a fuller introduction in uh, on Owen, uh, go back and check out a couple of our other podcasts. He's a missionary in Bulgaria, and he's on a different time zone, obviously, but uh, I think it's several hours difference where he's at, So, um, but we are grateful to have him. Uh, he also does uh, two other podcasts, and you can catch him there. The first one is Memento Mori, and that is a podcast in which he critiques The Walking Dead from a Christian worldview. So if you're into The Walking Dead and you're a Christian, that's definitely for you. Um, he, as he said before, if you don't even watch The Walking Dead, then it's, you know, don't even bother. But uh, I've seen a couple of episodes, and it's pretty intense stuff. I, I think I'd watch it maybe a little bit more if I had cable or uh, satellite or basically anything other than the three channels that I have. <laughs> uh, so, uh, and sometimes I don't even have that because uh, Channel 7 goes out. But... Um, Anyways, you can check him out there. And then we also have, uh, well, Owen, l- let me back up here. Owen also does another podcast uh, called Ask a Millennial Christian. So check him out there. It's fantastic stuff. I've I've still got to work through all of those episodes. <laughs> uh, but um, the, he, did, he did one with Ty- Tyler Vela um, recently. And then uh, the one that I just listened to was uh, about 
uh, doctrine, uh, whether or not doctrine divides. So check him out there. He's, he's got some excellent stuff, some excellent content. Uh, so Owen is actually pretty busy uh, when he's not co-hosting Semper Reformanda. And then uh, we also have today in studio a guest, uh, Brother Timothy Kaufman. And I'm a huge fan of, of Kaufman's. But uh, he, is, um, he is here today to talk to us about a topic that uh, it's going to be interesting how this plays out. Because once again, I think we're, we're going to stir a hornet's nest. This is going to be a different hornet's nest uh, than the NCT hornet's nest. But it's, it's pretty interesting because we, we, haven't, we haven't tested the, the Bible-thumping wingnut waters. And so I'm, I'm kind of curious to see how uh, our audience who are, you know, we, we came onto this platform and the Bible-thumping wingnut uh, guys, Tim and Len, graciously gave us a, a platform, and, and we thank them for that. We're part of the Bible Thumping Wingnut Network now, and it's going to be really interesting to see um, what everybody thinks about the topic that we're going to talk about today. And I'll just go ahead and tell you what it is. We're going to be talking about Tim Keller. And if you don't, if you're if you're a Christian and you don't know who Tim Keller is, well, I'm not really sure. How that's even possible because uh, Tim Keller is, is definitely a, a household name. But Brother Kaufman uh, is here to talk to us about uh, Tim Keller. And I want to give you some background into uh, Kaufman, uh, Timothy Kaufman, who, who's our guest. Uh, he is uh, he's a prolific writer. He has a blog that I think everybody out there should go out and check out. The blog is, is uh, called Out of His Mouth. And this blog is filled with uh, with stuff on eschatology. It's it's got a, a lot of uh, stuff on history. It's got a lot of stuff on uh, on Roman Catholicism. And I would actually rate Brother Kaufman as an expert on Roman Catholicism. So if you are wondering about Roman Catholicism, then uh, Brother Kaufman is is definitely your guy to go to he, and it's pretty interesting because if you go to his blog and I, I would recommend this if you go to brother Kaufman's blog I would say to also don't just read the articles read the comments because he has several uh, f from what I've from what I've seen in the past he has a couple of uh, Roman Catholic apologists that constantly take him to task on things and he is just he, he's knocking it out of the park so I, I mean, I could spend hours just reading the comments, and I mean, it, it's just, it's fascinating stuff. Um, his his stuff on eschatology has been eye-opening to me, personally. Um, we'll have to do an episode in the future on eschatology, but check that out. Uh, Brother Kaufman has also uh, written two books. I, th I think it's two books. Uh, he's written Quite Contrary and uh, This Grave and Bread. Or Graven Bread, actually, and both of those books are about Roman Catholicism. Quite contrary is about uh, the apparitions of Mother Mary, which is fascinating stuff, and uh, I would I would definitely encourage you to go check that out. Um, he also the, the the book Graven Bread 
is also uh, about Roman Catholicism, but this tackles uh, Eucharistic adoration. And, I, I mean, it's it's interesting because th this guy is such a prolific writer, but he's, he's such a well-articulated writer. And so I, I definitely think you're going to enjoy his stuff. Uh, he has also written articles uh, on the Trinity Foundation, and we would highly recommend the Trinity Foundation as an excellent uh, uh, ministry that's out there. Uh, for people to utilize so go and check them out but Kaufman has a message on the Trinity Foundation and he also has a um, he has a couple of articles on the Trinity Foundation so you can just look up his name and and those articles will pop up and the articles are uh, some of the articles if if not all of them uh, are concerning Tim Keller and so brother Kaufman has written about Tim Keller and we're gonna get into that a little bit uh, more later, but let me uh, let me first ask Kaufman to introduce himself, and uh, and let me ask you if there's anything that I missed uh, in the introduction, any any anything that you've done that I I didn't mention. Well, thank you very much for that very generous introduction. I I do write in my free time and enjoy it very much. It's quite therapeutic to me. So um, I have. Uh, I, I was raised as a Roman Catholic with a very sincere devotion to the apparitions of Mary. In fact, I spent a summer at a monastery between my eighth and ninth grade years in junior high school. And one spring break in college, I spent uh, at a seminary because I was in a discipleship group that was specifically designed to recruit and retain young men who were considering the priesthood and to basically funnel them into that calling. So when I took a job out of college and moved to Huntsville, Alabama, and was invited to attend a Protestant church, I was initially reluctant to accept the offer only because I really had intended to come to Huntsville and find a church to go to and just live out a Roman Catholic life because I was basically had been raised that way, and it's what I had been planning on from the beginning. But because the person inviting me to church was actually the man who had actually given me the job in Huntsville, I decided out of courtesy to accept his invitation, and I went to church with him. And that was the beginning of my exit from Roman Catholicism. What that led me to was a familiarity with the scriptures that uh, was foreign to me up until that point, and it led me to start comparing what I had learned from the apparitions of Mary growing up as a Roman Catholic. Compare that to what the scriptures actually teach. And I came to a conclusion that the apparitions of Mary were teaching a very different gospel and were teaching contrary to the scriptures. And that was what led to me writing the book, Quite Contrary, a biblical reconsideration of the apparitions of Mary. And then as I continued to study further and learned just how idolatrous Eucharistic adoration was, because I was I had been raised worshiping the Eucharist as well. I wrote the follow-on book called Graven Bread, which is basically to explain just how idolatrous Eucharistic adoration is. So I wrote those two books and then I also edited a, a compilation of Charles Spurgeon's writings against Roman Catholicism because they tend to be edited out of modern editions of his works. I thought it would be important to pull together and collect them in one place, save them for posterity, because 
modern ecumenists don't like to read what Spurgeon actually had to say about Roman Catholicism. So I thought it was important to preserve that for future generations. So I, I put that together in a book called Geese in Their Hoods, which was basically an article, uh, basically a short sermon that Spurgeon had given about monkery, and I thought it was an appropriate title for the book as well. So I knew it. I knew I was going to forget something. <laughs> um, oh, man. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you... Uh, and it's funny because uh, I subscribe to your blog, and I would encourage everybody to subscribe to your blog um, because I think you put out an article just about every week. And um, I found myself having to study the articles that you do write. So it takes me – it's like you can actually write faster than I can read <laughs> because I'll be I'll be uh, stuck on one article and um, and going through that and studying that and comparing what you're writing to to the Bible and then all of a sudden another article comes out and I haven't even finished the first one and then some some weeks I can't even get to it so it just piles up but um I right, thank you for that introduction uh, thank you for uh, all the work that you have done in that area I think it's a uh, it's really a benefit to the church so uh, we're grateful for that uh, let me go ahead and uh, introduce Owen Pond. Uh, well, I've already introduced him, but let me give him an opportunity to say hello to everybody. Yeah, yeah I am a missionary in Sofia, Bulgaria. We've been here for the past year and a half, and before that we were missionaries in Russia, but we had to leave due to a general tightening of the border. And then now, as many of you have heard, uh, last month or, or already at the end of June, they've almost completely shut off any and all missionary activity in Russia. Pretty much everything that a missionary would do in Russia is now illegal. So um, we're here uh, and we're trying to work with the local Bulgarian population, the Roma, which is Gypsy, and also some of the Turkish minority groups. That is awesome. Uh, thank you, Owen, for sharing uh, what you do with us. And uh, thank you for being part of uh, Semper Reformanda when you can. I understand that you have a, a pretty busy schedule, but nonetheless, you're here with us, and, and we're grateful for that. And uh, and we also have uh, myself and Carlos, and uh, we're coming at you from El Paso, Texas. And uh, we can relate to a lot of the stuff that Kaufman writes about because we have a, a rich... Uh, Catholic heritage here in El Paso so there's a lot going on in our city but um, I know Carlos wanted to share some thoughts on Kaufman before we get started he wanted to add to the introduction that I gave so uh, let me let me let Carlos say hello and uh, and uh, give some some feedback into his personal experience uh, with brother Kaufman so thank you very much, Brother Kaufman, for joining us. I'm extremely grateful to have him on here on the show with us. Um, I actually wanted to share a little bit of a background story of how we came across to meeting him. And what happened was that we ha we were having a situation at, at our old church that Tim and I used to go to, where Tim and I actually met a few years back. Uh, and what happened was that we there was a I guess like a, a church leadership boot camp or something like that and 
uh, we went they gave us a binder full of articles to, to go over and over half of those articles were on Tim Keller so I had never heard of Tim Keller prior to that uh, event basically and so but as I started to read him I, I kind of noticed a lot of s some problems and for example in one of the articles called why plant churches uh, Keller makes a statement uh, he says this only a person who is being evangelized in the context of an ongoing worshiping and shepherding community can you be sure of finally coming home into vital saving faith and so obviously this contradicts the the apostle john's reason for writing uh his letter you know in first john 5 13 it says to you who believe in the name of the son of god so that you may know that you have eternal life so we don't have to go to church in order to know that we're saved and so that a sort of started to sound a lot like the the romish or the romanist view of the church and so that kind of raised my antenna up a little bit i got i was sort of suspicious of keller at that point and eventually a friend lent me he lent me a uh uh the the book one of his books called the prodigal god and that was the first book that i read by keller and when I finished reading that book, it was even before I finished reading it, it was just I was pretty surprised at how much of a mess that book was and how much how much uh, just false teaching really was being promoted in, the, in that book. And so that's by at that point, I, I started to realize that Keller is a he's a very serious problem. And uh, I was surprised at how, how popular he was, even amongst, uh, you know, people who are well known and, and actually well respected uh, and doctrinally sound uh, teachers because of these gospel coalition the, you know the gospel coalition that Keller co-founded and things like that I guess putting up a platform for others to to uh, be able to fellowship with him and make it and almost give him like an air of a uh, of orthodoxy or or uh, so it was it was very startling when I finished reading that book and so I was, uh, we, re I reached out, we reached, Tim and I reached out to the Trinity Foundation, uh, which is one of our, the fa our favorite ministries that we highly recommend to our listeners, and we've, we've mentioned them before, and we've cited them before, and so we reached out to the president, who was Tom Joe Datis, and he referred us to, 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 uh, Brother Kaufman, because he had written some articles, some really good articles about Keller, and so we, I had basically reached out to him and asked if he, <laughs> excuse me if we could get in touch with him and uh, so that he can help us sort out these issues and bring them uh, bring these concerns to to the church uh, leadership to our church leadership and so basically it things just didn't work out uh, very well at, at our old church I mean the more we got involved uh, the more problems that I started to see in the leadership especially and so uh, when we tried to bring these things about Keller it just we were we were arguing on a completely different almost on a completely different uh, foundation and so we ended up leaving and it just didn't work out and so when we started to that's how we basically met uh, brother Kaufman he, he was a great blessing and a help to us in, in, in during that really difficult period of, of transitioning out of that church and so uh, we're very grateful for him I'm actually, and I'm, I'm very grateful for him, not just for that, but also because uh, every time I talk to Brother Kaufman, whether it's by email or by phone, uh, or 
just in any form of, or reading his blog or his articles uh, I'm always learning something new and he always uh, he's he's actually helped me to understand the Bible almost as when I first uh, started to understand and believe Calvinism uh, it's that level of 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 I guess contribution that he's had on my understanding of the Bible of the scriptures and what I specifically I'm referring to is Keller has some really good he's done a lot of really good work on I'm, I'm sorry brother Kaufman has done some really good work on uh, showing the the jealousy narrative uh, of the Bible and how the Bible has a lot to say and how the Jews it, not just you know throughout the whole Bible but especially specifically in the New Testament how Jesus and the Apostles uh, basically the, the ministry of Christ and how it was specifically designed to offend and to provoke the Jews to jealousy uh, for that for uh, and how that comes into play in the God's overall plan of uh, dealing with Jews and Gentiles and so I've, it's been a huge blessing to to get to know Brother Kaufman and his work has been a huge and a very edifying uh, for me personally and so I'm very grateful to have him on and we highly recommend our listeners to check out his blog, his website, his books. Uh, you will see that Brother Kaufman is a very cogent, a very he, his his grasp and his understanding of Scripture is very solid. Uh, it actually reminds me of Gresham uh, Gresham Machen, uh, who was a, a Presbyterian back in the earlier uh, 20th century, and who founded the the OPC. And uh, Machen, when I first read Machen, you know, Christianity and Liberalism was the first book I read from him. And he was, he's a very solid, mature Christian thinker. He, he helped bring a lot of balance to some of my ex more extreme views that I had uh, sort of adopted from more extreme uh, cult-like cult groups and things like that. So uh, Brother Coffin is a very mature, very solid, uh, very cogent uh, thinker, a Christian thinker. So we highly recommend his ministry his writing and his contributions to everybody so brother coffin with that being said we uh give you the floor to uh for you to talk to us about uh tim keller well i'll, I'll be delighted to thank you again for the opportunity to join you in this ministry um i first heard of keller in the 90s when a friend of mine who also was a pastor provided a link to me and said, you really need to listen to this guy out of New York. And it was the first time I'd ever heard of Tim Keller. And over the next 20 years, as we've seen, uh, Keller's works have become more and more popular and more widely circulated. Um, every sermon becomes a chapter in a book. Every series becomes a book. Every uh, theological or philosophical meandering of Tim Keller becomes a white paper of some sort that gets circulated. And he really enjoys a tremendous amount of prominence uh, from the pulpits around the country, uh, the Christian bookstores and other bookstores around the country and around the world. And uh, I think it hit me one day when I was, I had gone to church one morning and in, in Sunday school, Tim Keller was referenced authoritatively. And then, uh, we, had, we proceeded from there to the, to the service, and from the pulpit, Tim Keller was cited authoritatively. And in the afternoon, there was actually a new communicants class for new members. And uh, I attended that with my son, and uh, Tim Keller was cited authoritatively there. 
And I thought to myself, you know, when did when did we become the, the church of Tim Keller? And you find that, uh, you know, if, you, if I just go out for a business breakfast here in Huntsville, Alabama, um, I might just be sitting there uh, having breakfast with some colleagues or or uh, other businessmen, and I'll see people gathered around a table, and they're studying a Tim Keller book. And that's their that's their weekly Bible study. So he he basically has permeated a tremendous amount of, of modern evangelical Christianity, and is considered quite authoritative. So what happened recently was one of my coworkers told me that his daughter had attended uh, a national gathering of the Reformed University Fellowship. And she called him and said, Dad, who is Tim Keller? Everybody here is talking about Tim Keller. Why is everybody talking about Tim Keller and who is he? And I tried to think of a way that you could respond to an inquiry like that in a, a short, understandable way. Because there's so much volume of information that it really needs to be covered about Tim Keller in order to get to the root of the issue. And I decided that probably the best way is simply to start with Venezuela. And and people might ask, well, why would you start with Venezuela? Well, it's pretty straightforward. Um, under the Marxist policies of Hugo Chavez and his successor, Nicolas Maduro, the military is now confiscating food from producers, forcing shop owners to sell it to the government at a loss, is imposing forced, forced labor or threatening forced labor on its citizens, and they wait 12 hours in food lines to find out that the shelves are bare. And uh, Venezuela is a country that is blessed with vast natural resources, and it cannot dig itself out of this economic black hole because Marxist policies have made slaves out of free men and is starving a generation of Venezuelans. The significance of that is that uh, Venezuela looks very much like it would if Tim Keller was president. Now, that sounds like a, a lot to say and a lot to lay at Tim Keller's feet, and it all goes down to Tim Keller's personal hermeneutic. And I set myself about with the purpose of studying Tim Keller's hermeneutic to get to the root of the issue. And that's what we want to talk about today. What is the root of the issue? We'll come back to Venezuela in a minute. But when Tim Keller was addressing the BioLogos organization on the topic of creation, evolution, and Christian lay people, he revealed something about himself that was very telling. He basically explained that he sees himself as a bridge between the church and the world, and it is his duty as a pastor to interpret the teachings of philosophers and scientists and theologians for his people. And this is what he said, and I think that this is probably the, the most profound negation of the true role of a pastor that I've ever seen an actual pastor make. And this is what he said at that uh, conference. In short, if I as a pastor want to help both believers and inquirers to relate science and faith coherently, I must read the works of scientists, exegetes, philosophers, and theologians, and then interpret them for my people. Someone might counter that this is too great a burden to put on pastors, that instead they should simply refer their lay people to the works of scholars. But if pastors are not up to the job of distilling and understanding the writings of scholars in various disciplines, how will our lay people do it? This is one of the things that parishioners want from their pastors. We are to be a bridge between the world of scholarship and the world of the street and the pew. 
I'm aware of what a burden this is. I don't know that there has ever been a culture in which the job of the pastor has been more challenging. Nevertheless, I believe this is our calling. And then that was in his first lecture. That's the end of the quote from Tim Keller. That was in his first lecture. In the sixth lecture, he concluded and said that my conclusion is that Christians who are seeking to correlate scripture and science must be a bigger tent than either the anti-scientific religionists or the anti-religious scientists. That's the end of that quote from part six of that series. Now, the significance of a statement or statements like these from Tim Keller is that he believes that it is his duty to find truth from Scripture and truth from the world and distill it for his people. And in fact, he's basically triangulating between what the Scripture says, what science says, trying to reconcile it to make a big tent. In fact, he says that explicitly later on, and I'll I'll mention the quote where he actually specifically addresses the issue of triangulation between what the world says and what the Bible says. The problem, of course, is that the duty of a pastor is to study and rightly divide the word of truth. That's from 2 Timothy 2.15. The problem with Keller is that his approach actually results in people being conformed to the world and not transformed by the renewing of the mind. The mind is transformed by the truth, and the truth is the word of God. When you try to take science which is inherently false, and all the best scientists and and, and philosophers of the ancient days knew and understood that science is inherently false. When you take something that is inherently false and you try to reconcile it with the truth, something's got to give. And what ends up giving is the truth, because in the end, science has to be the final authority. And that is basically what his approach is. Now, the, when I say science is false, people may say, well, wait a second, science helps us understand the universe. No, I'll, I'll grant you that science as a discipline does help us interpret the universe, and sometimes it helps us approximate physical realities that we observe. But it is not a source of truth, and all the best scientists know it. Even Einstein said that none of his theories could ever be proven true, and a single experiment could prove them false. He did not see science is a source of truth. But scriptures is a source of truth, and that's why we can't say that scriptures necessarily have to be correlated or reconciled with science, because that's to attempt to reconcile truth with falsehood. Now, the reason that is significant is because Keller's approach to the scriptures is to take the scientific meanderings of philosophers and exegetes and theologians and reconcile them with the scriptures, distill that, and convey it to his flock. Basically, he's taken a a hybrid of truth and falsehood, put it together, and thinks that he is actually conveying truth to his flock. Now, the, the, the real danger that this introduces to the ministry of the pulpit is that there are a lot of thoughts and beliefs out there in the world, and Keller is basically taking the ones that he believes to be true that comport with his personal position. And then he finds a way to marry them to the scriptures and then convey them to the congregation as if that was what the scripture was teaching. And so I set myself about the task of understanding Tim Keller's actual hermeneutical, hermeneutical approach to the scriptures 
in his ministry of exegesis. And I've read a great many of his works. I've listened to a great many of his sermons. But probably the most profoundly insightful audio that I've ever listened to is an 18-lecture series that Tim Keller and Ed Clowney put together in 2008, and it's called Preaching Christ in a Postmodern World. So I listened to that 18 hours of lectures and 18 hours of question and answers sessions and distilled that into an article that I wrote uh, a couple years back, and it's called Getting Sanctification Done or the Primacy of Narrative in Tim Keller's Exegetical Method. Now, what happens when a pastor is called to teach the Word of God is that his obligation is to use his skills, his language, his personality as a platform from which to deliver the Word of God to his people, uh, to the flock. And that's pretty much what Paul explained in 1 Corinthians 2, 2-4. For I determined not to know anything among you save Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And in my, my speech and my preaching was not with enticing words of man's wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power. And Paul set himself about to use whatever skills he had, whatever knowledge he had, whatever personality he had, good for good or for bad, to distill the truth of the word of God and teach it, deliver it to the flock. But Keller's hermeneutical approach is different from this. Keller claims to preach Christ from every text, and that has a ring of piety until you actually uncover how he approaches that and how he implements it. The approach he uses can actually hide the message of the word from the hearer. And what we find is Keller is extremely selective in what he hides and what he reveals to his audience. And let me just say that every text of Scripture is not inherently about Christ. Some texts are about Alexander the Great, for example, Daniel 11.3, or the size of Behemoth's tail, as in Job 40.17, or the Persian tax policy in the Greek islands, as in Esther 10, verse 1. We are not called to preach Christ from those texts. We are called to preach the text and the text actually talks about Alexander the Great, or a dinosaur's tail, or Persian tax policy in the Greek Isles. It is not a prefiguration of Christ. But Keller insists that we must teach Christ from every text. In fact, he insists that every psalm is messianic. Every text is about Jesus, no matter what the text actually says. In reality, some of the psalms actually refer to the personal sins of the psalmist and the broken bones of the psalmist. As we know from the scriptures, because the scriptures insist that not one bone of Christ was broken, we cannot say, and that's from John 19, 36, these things were done that the scripture would be fulfilled, a bone of him shall not be broken. When a psalmist actually refers to his own broken bones, it's a pretty good indication that this is not a messianic psalm. It's actually a psalm by a psalmist about the psalmist and what he's experiencing. And it's important for us to understand that not every text in the scripture is specifically speaking about Christ. Sometimes it's speaking about something that we need to hear. And sometimes we need to hear things about King David, Ahasuerus, Esther. We might even need, might even need to know about Eve or about Seth, her son. So if we go to the scriptures and say, 
every single thing is about Jesus, we end up missing what the text is actually saying. And the underlying weakness, and I would even go so far as to say the underlying danger of that hermeneutical method, is that the expositor is in a position to presume to know the meaning of the text before he even reads it. That is, I haven't read the text yet, but I already know that it is about Jesus. That is not piety, that is presumption. And it is not a sound approach to understanding God's written revelation to man. But because Keller presumes to know the meaning of every text before he read it, he reads it, the Word of God ends up serving as a platform for Keller to deliver what he personally believes to be true. Not only does that elevate Keller's personal narrative above the text of Scripture, but Scripture itself becomes a hindrance to Keller. And so he leaves out the portions that are not consistent with his own personal narrative. This was brought out in striking irony in, a, in, a, in a, a, an audio series about how to preach the scriptures. Keller actually advised his audience to leave out the last two chapters of Esther when they expounded. And the reason he gave was that it's just not consistent with the overarching narrative of scripture. Now, when somebody says that something in the scripture is not consistent with the overarching narrative of scripture, you have to wonder if they're talking about the scripture's overarching narrative or their own personal overarching narrative. And what we find out is that Keller actually sees his own narrative as the prime or, 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 or owning the place of primacy in his exegesis. And what we found in that series about preaching Christ in a postmodern world is that that's exactly how Keller approaches his preaching ministry. And I find examples of this repeatedly in his works. And I'll just give you some examples here before we proceed, because we will get back to Venezuela in a minute. In his book, The Meaning of Marriage, Keller insists that marriage is not the product of evolution, but was instituted by God based on a literal reading of Genesis 1, because that is, in fact, the argument that Jesus makes in Matthew 19.4 and Mark 10.6, when he says, from the beginning, God made them male and female. Those are quotes from Genesis chapter 1, and Keller uses those quotes from Jesus to show that marriage was instituted by God. But when Keller was speaking at the BioLogos conference, it was to a different audience. And this time, he was speaking about the origins of Adam and Eve. And here, Keller does not rule out the evolutionary origins of Adam and Eve because Genesis 1 is not to be taken literally. Notice that he can just go one way with one audience and another way with another audience because in the end, Keller is triangulating. He's trying to find that third way between what the scriptures say, what science teaches, and try to bring everybody together under a big tent. The same thing happened in his book, Counterfeit Gods. Keller was writing about the invisible gods of money, sex, and power, or the invisible idols of money, sex, and power. And so he's interpreted Ezekiel 14.4 to refer to invisible idols of the heart. And he quoted halfway through the verse and said, see, Ezekiel was talking about idols of the heart. And I'm sure that the elders of Israel are looking around saying to themselves, idols? What idols? I don't see any idols. And the reason Keller would want to approach the text that way is because he's writing a book about invisible idols. But in doing so, he left off the second half of that verse, which says that the men of Israel were guilty of putting the stumbling block of his iniquity before his face, a plain reference to a physical, visible idol. But this, that 
was not consistent with Keller's narrative in his book and therefore was left out. Scripture is made to be clay in the hands of Keller as he uses it, edits it, and augments it to serve his personal narrative. In fact, in the section, in, in the series that I listened to about how to preach Christ, he talked about how important, and he said it twice, that you need to leave out those last two chapters of Esther because they don't comport with the overarching narrative of Scripture. But when Keller talks about Abraham's interaction with Isaac, when Abraham was attempting to obey God's command to sacrifice Isaac, in Keller's eyes, the scriptural narrative is not sufficiently is not sufficiently to the point. And so he mentioned that when he watched a Hollywood rendition of Abraham's sacrifice of Isaac or attempt to sacrifice Isaac, there was a key point in the movie where Isaac asks Abraham, is there anything he cannot ask of you? And Keller will say, you know, that's such a moving question that he can't help but include that anytime he preaches on Abraham. Now think about the significance of that. And this is the real issue with Keller is that if the scripture is inconsistent with Keller's narrative, he leaves it out. If something outside of scripture actually says it better than the scripture, Keller will find a way to work it in. And in both cases, he actually appeals to authorial intent. He says that he won't preach through Esther verse by verse and chapter by chapter because he can't imagine that it was the author's intent for the book to be preached that way. Now, that's a very uh, academic way of simply saying I'm rejecting a part of Scripture because it's not consistent with what I personally believe to be true. But if there's something outside of Scripture that he believes to be true but the Scripture doesn't say, he'll import that because, again, it's consistent with his personal narrative. So this dangerous hermeneutic is on full display in Keller's recent work called Every Good Endeavor. And I wrote on this for the Trinity Foundation in an article called Workers of the Church Unite. And it was about how Keller's radical social gospel is founded on Marxism. And it really, the the intent of the article is to expose Keller's intellectual marriage to Marxism, all cloaked in the language of Christianity. And as Keller wrote in The Reason for God, Another book of his, he was raised in a conservative Christian environment, but in his formative years, he was exposed to the neo-Marxism of the Frankfurt School. And he found that the social activism was particularly attractive and the critique of American bourgeoisie society was compelling. And, and, and these are Keller's words, and this gets back to the problem of his hermeneutic. He says that uh, facing the choice between two camps, Keller thought sought a spiritual third way, and that, quote, spiritual third way, unquote, was used to baptize Marxism and repackage it as the very model of the Christian work ethic. And that's what every good endeavor is is marketed as, a book about the Christian work ethic. So throughout the book, Keller actually invokes Marx and Marxists who worked for revolution to overturn the capitalist system. From his book, Every Good Endeavor, he says Karl Marx was the first to speak of alienated labor in the heyday of the early 19th century of European Christianity, uh, European industry. 
And, and he talks about how Karl Marx addressed that issue of alienation. But alienation in Marxist theory is the problem with wage labor, labor in a uh, capitalist society. To Marx, to work for a wage is demeaning and it alienates a worker from the product of his labor. And so Karl Marx's entire political philosophy was to overcome that alienation and introduce the, the labor back to the products of his labor again. So the foundation of Keller's book is, and, and he says this in, in Every Good Endeavor, he talks about Robert Bella's landmark book, Habits of the Heart. And there was a challenge in Habits of the Heart to reacquaint or reintroduce the, the worker to his labor uh, and, and to address the problem of alienation. And Bella was, in fact, a communist. And yet Keller uses Habits of the Heart as the backdrop for his entire book, Every Good Endeavor, which is intended to be a book about the Christian work ethic, or at least it's marketed as a book about the Christian work ethic. Keller cites Dorothy Sayers repeatedly, but Sayers was an advocate for Marx's theory of wages. He, In his book, Scandalous Justice, uh, Keller cites Vinath Ramachandra and calls him a Sri Lankan theologian. What he doesn't say is that Sri Lankan theologian is, in fact, a socialist. In in uh, in generous justice, he also cites Gustavo Guterres, and he refers to his preferential option for the poor. And Keller defers to him in his book as quote a Latin American theologian, but fails to mention that he was the founder of liberation theology, which is a thoroughly Marxist Roman Catholic movement. In every good endeavor, uh, Keller cites Daniel Bell in his article "The Cultural Contradictions of Capitalism." As, and he does so to show that, see, even people in a capitalist society understand that capitalist has its flaws and has run its course. What he doesn't tell you is that Daniel Bell is, in fact, a socialist whose own writings indicate that his first love was Marxism. Uh, throughout Every Good Endeavor, uh, Keller cites Reinhold Niebuhr. And yet Reinhold Niebuhr was, yes, he was a theologian and a philosopher of the 20th century, but he was a rank socialist who insisted that socialism must come to America. Uh, in Every Good Endeavor, he cites Michael Schluter as a Christian economist. But Michael Schluter insists on, quote, transforming capitalism from within through the implementation of Marxist economic theory. And yet Keller never throughout his book says, by the way, I am a Marxist. I am citing Marxists and I am attempting to repackage Marxism as the Christian work ethic. But remember, Keller's hermeneutical approach is to find the spiritual third way. He tries to triangulate between what Scripture says and what the world says. And as far as he's concerned, Marx is just one more scientist who he needs to digest and interpret and deliver to his people along with the word of God so that he can think that he has properly distilled the truth for them. Well, the problem with Marxism is Venezuela. Just look at what has happened in Venezuela over the last 15 years as all of Marxist ambitions, all of Marx's ambitions have come true, is that they completely removed, uh, solved the alienation by eliminating the rewards of success and the punishments for failure and made it so that there's no longer a connection between productive labor and wealth. And what do you have? You have 12-hour food lines, scarcity, forced labor, 
or the threats of forced labor and an absolute economic collapse. And Keller is advocating for Marxism to become the standard for the church as far as the Christian work ethic goes. And I want to, we'll wrap up on this as far as the introduction to Keller and the danger of Keller's triangulation and his spiritual third way. In his book, Ministries of Mercy, he insists that the church must actively influence social systems by providing instruction to policymakers and through political intervention. To do this effectively, he says, the church must be reform-minded and provides two models of that reform, the California model and the New York model. The California model is Allen Temple Baptist Church. And Allen Temple Baptist Church, if you study it, trains community organizers using lessons learned from other organizing models, particularly those led and inspired by Saul Alinsky, who actually militated for, uh, for, for a Marxist revolution. It's a church dedicated in teaching socialist socialism, dedicated to Marxist liberation theology, and the, and the spirit of Saul Alinsky's revolution. Now, the New York model is the East Brooklyn congregations. But East Brooklyn congregations' so-called gospel of change is simply to use Saul Alinsky's radical methods to advance the Marxist revolution. What you notice is these two models that he provides for the church and all the sources that he uses in his different books, every one of them, to a man and to a woman, actually advocated for changing the system through revolution which is exactly what Marxism is always trying to do. And that brings, of course, brings us back to Venezuela. People say, what do you think about Tim Keller? And I say, well, it depends on how you feel about Venezuela. If you think scarcity and people having to fight over bare grocery shelves, sometimes to the death, you think 12-hour food lines and forced labor. All right. I think uh, Brother Coffin just dropped out. Um yeah, okay, he's not recording anymore. Um, so he's probably going to have to just uh, restart his computer, actually. And um, But in, in the meantime, let me let me go ahead and capitalize on some of the things that he just said. Um, and I think basically what was illustrated right now was exactly what Carlos was saying, that every time we talk to Brother Kaufman, we just learn so much. I mean, I'm thinking about how he just uh, said that, you know, science is always false or and and I can imagine some people out there, if you're not familiar with uh, Clarkian uh, scripturalism, then you might be saying, what do you mean? I thought we could learn a lot from science. And so I would agree with him and say that science is not an epistemological foundation, that you know science is always false, that uh, there's a number of uh, logical fallacies that science can't overcome, and that science is a tool. So obviously we're going to have to do an episode on that in the future. And then I'm thinking, okay, um, what about all this stuff with socialism, you know? And I think that that's uh, another topic that we're going to have to take up because a lot of Christians out there, uh, even Christians that I know personally, think that uh, so socialism is a virtue that is biblical, and especially with uh, the, the Bernie Sanders phenomenon that, that came out. Now, obviously, we're a little late in addressing that, but even in the Bernie Sanders phenomenon, there are a lot of people out there putting up pictures of uh, Jesus and saying, that you, uh, you know, Christians worship a uh, uh, Jewish socialist anyway, so why not vote for Bernie Sanders? And so 
I think at the core of all of this, and, and this goes back to what Brother Kaufman was saying, was that uh, Keller is is merging secular a secular worldview with a Christian worldview, rather than just drawing out a biblical worldview. And I think that that's the problem that a lot of Christians have, is that they don't set out to define a Christian worldview that's derived from Scripture. And uh, let me go ahead and I, I want to read part of an article by uh, Gary Crampton, Dr. Gary Crampton, that uh, can be found on the Trinity Foundation. It's called uh, Scripturalism. Uh, let me let me pull up the title. Uh, this article is titled, uh, so that you can find it, and we're going to put it up there. Um, it's titled, Scripturalism, a Christian Worldview. And in the introduction, uh, Crampton writes, Scripturalism is a, world is a world and life view. A worldview is a set of beliefs about the various issues of life. All persons have worldviews. They are inescapable. One's worldview will determine how he views the entirety of life, the decisions he makes, why he does what he does, and so forth. All worldviews have presuppositions which govern, which govern their system of belief. These presuppositions function as axioms from which all decisions are deduced. Scripturalism is that system of belief in which the, wor the Word of God is foundational in the entirety of one's philosophical and theological dealings. This system of thought averes that Christians should never try to combine secular and Christian notions. And that's exactly what Tim Keller is doing. He's trying to combine secular notions with Christian notions. Crampton goes on to write, he says, Rather, all thoughts are to be brought captive uh, into... Uh, hold on, let me read that last sentence again. Uh, rather, all thoughts are to be brought into captivity to the Word of God. 2 Corinthians 10.5, which is part of the mind of Christ, 1 Corinthians 2.16. Our minds must be transformed to, quote, prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God, as found in Scripture, Romans 12.2. And so, I think that that's, I think that's exactly what Tim Keller is doing. And not only that, but then I think that that's why so many people are caught up by this because they themselves don't have a uh, they haven't set out to to make a comprehensive worldview that's derived from scripture so these if it sounds positive if it sounds uh, virtuous then uh, they just eat it up and one of the things that I wanted to uh, talk about was um, I, I actually wrote an article and, and I'm gonna uh, publish it on the the Bible thumping wingnut uh, blog site but uh, I wrote an article uh, in which I, I uh, critiqued Tim Keller's book, The Prodigal God. And one of the things that I found alarming, and this is where I first started to realize it, was that Tim Keller will uh, quote whoever, whoever you know, will fit his narrative. And uh, when, so let me, I guess what I'll do is I'll just read a section from my own article in which uh, Tim Keller is actually talking about the gospel but then he quotes a Roman Catholic as someone who basically got the message of Jesus. And, and I found that very, very alarming. And um, so l let, me read, uh, l let me read this. Uh, quoting Tim Keller, and I, this is on page 45, I think, on the Kindle version. But, um, and I'll, I'll, uh, I'll post this article so all the, all the references are there. Uh, but uh, Keller writes, Jesus says, quote, 
The humble are in and the proud are out. See Luke 18:14. Now, first of all, uh, that's not a that's he puts what Jesus says in quotes. Um that's not a quote that I mean go go to Luke 18:14. Um, that may be an, an inference that one can draw from the text, but he says, Jesus says, quote, the humble are in and the proud are out. That's look at any Bible translation. That's not actually a quote. So, I mean, when you're quoting something that Jesus said, you might want to quote what Jesus said accurately and quote the Bible accurately. But once again, this is just an example of Keller distorting what the Bible says. He says, uh, he goes on to write, The people who confess that they aren't particularly good or open-minded are moving toward God because the prere prerequisite for receiving the grace of God is to know that you need it. The people who think they're just fine, thank you, are moving away from God. Quote, the, uh, the Lord cares for the humble, but... He keeps his distance from the proud. Psalms uh, 138, verse 6, New Living Translation. And I think that one he quoted accurately. He goes on to write, When a newspaper posted the question, What's wrong with the world? The Catholic thinker G.K. Chesterton repu uh, re reputedly wrote a brief letter in response. Dear sir, I am. Sincerely yours, G.K. Chesterton. That attitude is... That is the attitude of someone who grasped the message of Jesus. Unfortunately, and and he even he even cites him as a as a Catholic thinker. Okay, uh, unfortunately, he he uh, this this is so this is so bad because he doesn't even he he doesn't even tell his audience to be to be warned that G.K. Chesterton was hostile to the, towards the Protestants. He doesn't tell them that G.K. Chesterton uh, held and affirmed a false gospel, a gospel that was damnable. And if one wants to, so so in Mark one fifteen, and I have this in the article, the message of Jesus was quote repent and believe the gospel. That's possibly the most uh, uh, succinct summarized message of Jesus: repent and believe the gospel. And so here we have a Roman Catholic thinker, a Roman Catholic who Keller cites as someone who, quote, got the message of Jesus, but affirmed a false gospel. And so when I started reading Keller, I, I noticed that he quotes N.T. Wright liberally in The Reasons for God. And N.T. Wright is another person who just, I mean, he's a heretic. Uh, he is, he, he affirms that, that uh, on the issue of justification, that Rome got it right, that the, that the reformers, that the Protestants got it wrong. And uh, he's just passing these guys on to uh, to to you know to his audience, and and most people are thinking like, okay, you know, we're we're uh, it's very ecumenical. Most people are thinking, oh, well, we're we're all brothers, you know, Catholics and Christians, and he's extremely ecumenical. And so, okay, it looks like uh, Brother Kaufman just popped back up. So, uh, Brother Kaufman, I'm gonna hand it off to you, and uh, uh, if you want to comment on any any of the stuff that I've said. Thank you, Tim. I really appreciate the concern you expressed about Tim Keller's use of G.K. Chesterton. And I want to let you know, and I want our listeners to know, that this is not an isolated incident. It's something that Tim Keller does on a regular basis. As we highlighted earlier, when we talked about Tim Keller's book, Generous Justice, he cited what he called, quote, a Latin American theologian, Gustavo Gutierrez. And he never actually mentions in the book that he's talking about the founder 
of liberation theology, which is a Marxist Roman Catholic movement. And now another example of that is when Tim Keller uh, invoked uh, Adele Albert Calhoun. He speaks of her in very high praises. Uh, in her Spiritual Disciplines Handbook, she actually recommended that people who recognize the tradition of adoring the Eucharist, which is the worship of the communion elements that Roman Catholicism does, she recommended that, you know, if that is the way you adore the Lord, that I recommend that you come early to church and just spend some time thanking him for his body given for us. That's from page four of her book, page 34 of her books, her book, uh, Spiritual Disciplines Handbook. Now, the significance there is that Adele Albert Calhoun is actually recommending idolatry. Now, what does Tim Keller say about this? Does he say, uh, I'm Tim Keller, and I've written against counterfeit gods, and one of the most prominent counterfeit gods in our, in our midst is the Roman Catholic Eucharist. No, he does not say that. He says, I have long profited from Adele Albert Calhoun gifts in the field of spiritual development, and I'm delighted that she has compiled her experience with spiritual disciplines into book form. I highly recommend it, and I look forward to using it as a resource at our church. So this is Tim Keller, who writes against counterfeit gods, and yet he endorses a book by a woman who actually endorses the worship of a counterfeit god. And this is not the only this is not an isolated incident of Tim Keller recommending Eucharistic adoration. In in this particular case, he does it indirectly, but he's approving of people who do recommend it. But but we in, in his recent book called Prayer, Tim Keller is talking about how to bring balance between the mystical and contemplative prayer traditions, and he invokes Roman Catholic theologian Hans Urs von Balthasar. And here Keller is quoting him in, in reference to uh, a, reverent re, a reverent regard for listening to the Word of God. Now, what we have to consider, though, is that when Keller invokes Balthasar, who says about the Word of God, is Balthasar speaking of the Word of God in the same way that Keller is? And he is not. And Balthasar means, when he talks about contemplating the Word of God, he means kneeling before the Word of God, the Eucharist, in adoration. And this is what this is what uh, Balthasar said. This is quoting from his book on prayer. Here, solitariness and community coalesce, and even the sacramental eating and drinking of the flesh and blood seems to have been subsumed into a fully realized communion with the Word. Here we have an important practical teaching with regard to contemplative prayer. It cannot be self-contemplation. On the contrary, it must be a devotional attention to what is essentially the non-I, which is God's Word. Now that sounds like he might be talking about contemplating the Word of God. And yet, later on, Balthasar clarifies, he said, The Word of God before which he kneels in adoration is God's Word to him. In other words, Worshiping of the Eucharist is the contemplation of the Word, and that's what Balthasar was recommending. And what's worse is he does this in the context of warning his flock about the dangers of Protestantism. He says, the first danger is that of Protestantism, which has a vital sense of the Word, character, or revelation, and is constantly involved with it. We Catholics must certainly admire and seek to emulate its earnest study of the Word of God, but too often it lacks something that would that, that could lift it to genuine contemplation and vision, namely the words indwelling in the order of being in the Eucharist and in the church as the mystical body and the vine. To that extent, its involvement with the word does not reach the Marian level. This serious concern to hear the word aright 
would need to be so immersed in the spirit of Mary and the church that it would be elevated once again to the full dignity of contemplation. That's uh, pages 27 and 28 of Balthasar's book on prayer. That and, and Tim Keller actually invokes Balthasar as a model of how to balance the mystical and contemplative in in, in uh, prayer tradition. And you have to think, you have to wonder, it, does Keller even have the foggiest idea what Balthazar is even talking about? Clearly, when Balthazar says contemplative prayer, he's talking about Eucharistic adoration of the idol of Rome. And, and it takes its direction from Mary. Is Balthazar right about this? If not, why use, why use Balthazar to instruct Keller's flock? Has Keller taken him out of context? If he has, to what purpose? You know, why would he quote Balthazar at all? Here's a, Balthazar is recommending Eucharistic adoration. But, but let's continue. In the same book on prayer, Tim Keller invoked Flannery O'Connor. You can't have studied American literature without knowing who Flannery O'Connor was, but she was a very devout doctrinaire Roman Catholic. Keller spends three pages on her and her quest for true prayer. And he quotes her lamentation. She says, I do not mean to deny the traditional prayers I've said all my life, but I have been saying them, but not feeling them. And so here, here Keller is quoting Flannery O'Connor, someone who really wanted to get in touch with God through prayer. And he has cited her actual prayer journal from, uh, it was published by, uh, it was published in uh, 2013. Uh, it's just a collection of, of writings from uh, Flannery O'Connor's prayer journal. Here are some of the gems from her journal. On page four. I ask you for a greater love for my Holy Mother, and I ask her for a greater love of you. Page 12. Thank you, dear God. I believe I do feel thankful for all you've done for me. I want to. I do. And thank my dear mother, whom I do love, Our Lady of Perpetual Help. Page 13. I believe it is right to ask you too, and to ask your mother to ask you too. But I don't want to overemphasize this angle of my prayers. Page 35. Take me, dear Lord, and set me in the direction I to go. My Lady of Perpetual Help, pray for me. Page 36. Lord, keep me. Mother, help me. Page 37. God is feeding me, and what I'm praying for is appetite. Our Lady of Perpetual Help, pray for me. So those are all quotes from the same prayer journal that Tim Keller quotes when he says that O'Connor wanted to get more out of her prayers in her quest for true prayer. Keller never lets on that this is a Roman Catholic idolatry. And yet he quotes her authoritatively as if she was uh, a model of true prayer. Now the question is, was Flannery O'Connor our sister in Christ? Did Keller have the foggiest idea of what she believed in her heart? Is this how we are to pray? O'Connor speaks of traditional prayers that she wants to feel and not merely recite. We need not imagine what those traditional prayers are. In her short story, A Temple of the Holy Ghost, she builds the entire narrative around her favorite traditional prayer, which is the Tanta Mergo, which is basically a prayer about worshiping the Eucharist. And O'Connor continues and concludes that short story, the point of which was to emphasize the true presence of Christ in the Eucharist and the need to worship it. The question that we have to ask, is Flannery O'Connor truly a model of true prayer? And why is Tim Keller quoting these Roman Catholic theologians in order to instruct Christ's flock on the proper way to pray? 
And as I said, the, the use of G.K. Chesterton is not an isolated incident. It's something that Tim Keller does on a regular basis, importing Eucharistic idolatry and Marian idolatry, Roman Catholic theology and mysticism into his teaching on prayer for the church and presumes to be the guide to everybody about how true prayer is done. And he does it by invoking these Roman Catholic mystics and idolaters. And we have to wonder, does Tim Keller really know what idolatry is and what a counterfeit God is? He has presumed to instruct us all about what's wrong with worshiping counterfeit gods and yet does not recognize a counterfeit God when he encounters it. And as we mentioned earlier, when he talked, he's, he's importing Marxism into the church. Marxism is based on covetousness, and covetousness is idolatry. And the sheer irony of Tim, Collett, Tim Keller presuming to instruct us on idolatry when he is bending over backwards to import idolatry into the church is just, it's beyond ironic. It's just, it's a very, very dangerous situation. And that's why I appreciate you bringing that to our attention. Well, I, I appreciate you giving us a lot more examples to go off on uh, to show that this is these aren't just isolated incidents, uh, that he is extremely ecumenical. And I had a, a pastor ask me uh, recently, he said, you know, well, so you don't think that, you know, you can quote uh, G.K. Chesterton and and, um, and some of these other guys. And, you know, you know, he asked me, uh, he said, so, you know, you wouldn't quote anything from them. And I said, no, you know, I'm basically just going to do what the Bible says, uh, Romans 16, 17. And I'm going to read this from the King James Version because I like the way that it says it. But it says, now I beseech you, brethren, mark them which cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which ye have learned, learned and avoid them. So it says to mark them and it says to avoid them. And, you know, obviously, okay, we need to use some discernment. We're not going to... Uh, start marking everybody that you know you oh you disagreed with me obviously I mean Carlos and I disagree with each other on things uh, Owen and and will disagree with us on some things um, so we have to exercise some discernment but obviously if, if it comes to a primary doctrine the gospel um, and these guys are basically anathematized by by what Paul says in Galatians 1 they're bringing a counterfeit gospel then obviously these guys are people that we should mark and avoid, um, so that nobody uh, is is uh, persuaded by them. But okay, so so let me let me go ahead and do this. I know that Owen had some questions, and uh, Owen wanted to uh, go over some stuff. So with you, Brother Kaufman. So let me go ahead and uh, and pass it on to Owen, uh, and and let him let him take it. Okay, Brother Kaufman, I have a, a question about what you just spoke about, sanctification and experiential, and then Tim Keller using things that he knows are not true but that work. And my first question would be, what exactly is sanctification uh, to Tim Keller in Tim Keller's teaching? Is it, mod is it behavioral modification? Is that what he's hoping to accomplish? Is it trying to move people into a different uh, style of Christian ethics. Um, just how does he understand sanctification? What does that look like? What is its role in the believer's life? And then my second question is, would you happen to remember off the top of your head any examples of him using something that's not true but works? Yes, uh, in fact, I will give you the direct quote, but uh, let's talk about sanctification and then we'll get into the uh, sanctification by error. 
But but in, in this series, in the series that I was using, which is Preaching Christ in a Postmodern World, he talks about getting sanctification done on the spot. And the way he gets sanctification done on the spot is by getting people to worship Christ. Now, I don't think that sanctification is by worship. Uh, sanctification is by the truth, and worship is a fruit of sanctification, but is not the method of sanctification. The fact is that we are to worship God in spirit and in truth, which means that worship has to, you know, sanctification is accomplished first by delivering the truth so that we know who it is that we're worshiping. And what you find in some of the medieval times and the counter-reformational times is that sanctification was actually through this mystical encounter. And what Keller is trying to, to, to bring about is that mystical encounter. And, and this is how he describes it. This is quoting directly from Keller in uh, session one in the introduction to his whole series on, on preaching Christ. He says, I believe, and this is quoting Keller now, I believe you can actually get sanctification done on the spot. Because if the person is worshiping Christ in a deeper way right there, that's what you have to do. Worship actually consumes the flesh. As I am actually worshiping Christ, I am both humbled and built up. As the sermon goes on, if I'm worshiping as I'm preaching and the people are worshiping as I'm preaching, they're getting sanctification done on the spot. In other words, they will not actually be as angry when they leave. They have been worshiping. They will find that the things that irritated them before will not irritate them because those things are not as necessary as they were before. The worship is the sanctification. And I'm going to, I'm going to pause there and insert my own, the editor's uh, parenthesis here. That's Keller saying the worship is the sanctification. You're getting sanctification done on the spot, to continue with this, uh, with this quote. In the sermon, you are making Christ glorious to their hearts at that moment. Jesus becomes a central thing at that moment during the sermon. They are actually being sanctified on the spot. The roots of the flesh are being withered in the light of the worship of Jesus. And that's what we're after. The, the, the problem I have with that is that... The worship, as he's talking, as he describes it, worship actually consumes the flesh. He's saying the worship is the sanctification, but the sanctification, according to the scriptures, is by truth. Sanctification happens by the preaching of the truth. And a result of me being sanctified in Christ by the truth is that I turn from false worship to true worship. The worship itself is not the sanctification, but it's a fruit of sanctification. Sanctification is by true things that are preached, and that is how God had ordained to sanctify his people. Now, Keller, I'm going to give you one example of Keller acknowledging that his own sanctification is by incorrect theology, and then finally an example where he acknowledges that sanctification can happen by error. And, and he says... Um, He's talking about a, a particular uh, experience that he had when he, he perceived, you know, he, he says, uh, you know, thinking about Jesus dying on the cross. And he says, now I want you to know, this is quoting Keller, I want you to know that this has been a very important way that God has worked in my life. When I see Jesus Christ dying on the cross, I feel like if he was willing to do that for me, if he was willing to stand up before those incredible giants of darkness that for no other reason than I just need to die with him. I need to stand there with him. If he's going to do that for me, then I need to stand alongside him. And if I, I go on, and even if I go under, 
I know that's not theologically right, that's not theologically correct, but there's something that said to me that if he was going to go to hell for me, and if all I could do is stand next to him and go to hell with him, I should. And 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 he actually, what he was talking about was this moving scene in the Lord of the Rings. And he's talking about how it really moved him so much and that God had used that in his life. And he even concedes, he goes, I know that's not theologically correct, but but still, God you used it, you know, basically for my sanctification. Now, I want to make sure I say this because to his credit, Keller insisted that his hearers not use his inferences from Eowyn's courage in Lord of the Rings as sermon illustrations. And I agree with him. You should not do that. But that's Keller saying that something that he knows very well is not theologically correct is something that God had used in his life to sanctify him. Now, just as he says that God has used incorrect theology in his life for his personal sanctification, he believes he can get sanctification done by using error even in his sermons. And this is Keller. I'm quoting Keller again. He says, Lewis, referring to C.S. Lewis, he goes, Lewis, in this sort of wonderful Arminian way, argues for hell as the price of freedom. He says that hell is the greatest monument to human freedom there is, that if you really want to screw up your life royally and eternally, you have the power to do it. Some people are actually like that. There are some people that are that radically committed to human freedom that I can use that even though I kind of don't believe it. Because he's not reformed, there are things Lewis says that theologically I don't like, and yet I know it works on certain people, so I use it. That's from uh, that's the end of the quote there. Session 13, Adoring Christ, Part 1, Getting Inside Their World, Part 2, uh, you know, from minute 12, uh, 12 minutes and 15 seconds to 13 minutes. Now, this is significant because this is from his quote, his series, his, the part of his uh, lecture that was on Adoring Christ. And, and, if you are going to adore Christ, you must adore him in truth. And yet Keller is saying that he can apply error to people's lives in order to get them to worship so they can be sanctified. Now that is a gross departure from the scriptural teaching on sanctification, that it is by truth. Keller should say that, uh, I'm not going to apologize for this. You're wrong to think that hell is the price for human freedom because Lewis was approaching that from the position of free will. And I said, I'm sorry, I can't do that because that would be to use error in order to persuade you to worship Christ. And I must use truth to do that because your sanctification is by the truth, not by an emotional response that I can elicit from you through error. Nick Keller is willing to set truth aside if he can get sanctification done on the spot, which is just absolutely a horrendous approach to sanctification. Now you you said that he it's you get sanctified through worship. So what does he mean by that? By singing songs, or what is what is the worship that Tim Keller was talking about? Well, he says as as you're worshiping Christ. So you know what you're getting more and more in tune with things, and you're worshiping Christ more and more thoroughly. And and that's that's the question: Is sanctification by worship, or is sanctification by the truth? And the truth is the preaching of Christ and preaching of the word. So you preach the word and you preach the gospel of Christ and you preach the truth. And I'll, I will say to you, because sanctification is by truth, you can be better sanctified by learning about the Persian tax policy in the Greek Isles, because that actually is the word of God. 
from Esther 10, chapter 1. You can be better sanctified by that than you can by an imaginary conversation that Abraham might have had with Isaac based on a Hollywood production. I'll just say that sanctification is not going to be by what Hollywood thought Abraham probably said to Isaac. Sanctification is by what is written in the Word of God as it is written on your heart. And God, because it is written on your heart and the Spirit dwells in you, produces an actual change in the way you think and the way you act. And that is sanctification. But Keller is trying to get people to be sanctified by the fruit of sanctification instead of by the actual effectual means of sanctification. And I think that's the error. Because what happens when you take that approach is that it doesn't really matter what you say anymore. That is, it doesn't matter what you preach. What matters is the response you get from it. And that's where sanctification takes place. And that's where worship is consuming the flesh. I think it's a horrible, horrible error. So, Brother Kaufman, um, if I'm understanding you right, uh, would you say that he is uh, magnifying the experiential um, and uh, over the Word of God? Yes, yes, I absolutely would. Because the, as we mentioned earlier, when the Word of God gets in the way of Keller's narrative, he leaves it out because it won't sufficiently contribute to their sanctification. But Keller will. Keller's narrative is what occupies the primacy of the pulpit. And it's that that he applies in order to get sanctification done. Um, okay. Uh, Owen, did you, uh, did you already talk about the... Um, the you guys were talking before we went on air, you guys were talking about uh, reading Christ into all of Scripture... Um, did you already want, did you want to go over that? Yeah, I definitely want to talk about that. And so we talked a little bit about Tim Keller's hermeneutic uh, being particular to him, and he has a narrative that he reads into the text. Um, but you also mentioned sort of a, a Christocentric hermeneutic, and I wanted to talk about that because I would contend that that's a pretty popular hermeneutic, particularly in Reformed circles, where the you find Christ in every passage, and I think uh, a majority, at least, of our listeners is going to be familiar with that and maybe even practice it themselves. What do you think are the problems with that, and in what ways is it not a faithful hermeneutic, and in what ways is it not helpful uh, for, for preparing a sermon or just expositing the text in general? Well, the, to get to a, a very specific point— if um, if we're reading something in in the scriptures that talks about history or eschatology and warnings of things to come, let's just say that the scriptures are pretty adamant about the fact that there's a, a bad, evil, wicked personality that is future to the writers that's going to rise up, rule the world. And the church needs to be very, very careful to avoid falling for the deception. Those passages are explicitly about Antichrist, about someone who's coming along who's going to be very, very bad. And I think it's very important that we not overlook that and say, um, hey, listen, 
all of Scripture is really about Jesus. And so let's not try to identify Antichrist. Let's instead talk about the merits and attributes of Christ. Well, that is a very pious way to say, let's just not pay attention to what God is telling us. There are some times that God is actually telling us about somebody besides Jesus and that we need to be warned about Jesus. And yet this Christocentric approach is actually used and due in no small part to the teaching of Tim Keller because his, his preaching Christ in a postmodern world is very widely listened to and uh, it's been uh, dispersed quite widely around the world to many different people in different congregations and, and with much uh, laud and accolation. The, I was talking with a friend of mine who attends a PCA church and we talked about Revelation and we talked about the identity of Antichrist and he said, you know, I really like what my pastor said that really uh, all of Scripture is really about Jesus and Revelation is about Jesus and so we don't need to really worry about the texts that say stuff about an Antichrist. We need instead to talk about Jesus. And, and it's a very pious way of saying there are certain parts of the Scripture that we just simply don't want to hear or preach from or listen to. So let's just turn away. But let's turn away because there's this overarching narrative that we need to focus on, and that overarching narrative is Christ. I disagree that every single text in the Scripture is about Jesus. Some of it is about Antichrist, and we need to be paying attention because that is actually the words of Jesus saying, listen to what I'm telling you about Antichrist. <laughs> now, that's just that's a that's that's an extreme example I know because you know Antichrist is going to have a lot of different connotations and meanings for different people because not everybody agrees on the eschatology, but the idea that you would look at Revelation and say, I know that there's a huge part of this is about this evil wicked personality and antagonist of the future, but let's instead talk about Jesus. I, I think that's a very dangerous approach because it basically says, I already know that Revelation is about Christ, and therefore I don't need to worry about what it's actually saying, because I know it's about Jesus. And if you go to the text already presuming to know what its meaning is, then you basically have given yourself license to ignore the teaching. Now, I, now that's just that I want I want to make sure that we clarify that that's a slightly different thing from, say, looking at a scripture that says, Thou shalt not covet, and then while you're reminding your flock that covetousness is a violation of the moral law, and then reminding them that even though we are given to covetousness because it is in our fallen nature to do so, that we have a Savior who paid the price for our covetousness, dying for in our place on the cross to save us from our sin. That's not the same thing as saying, that every single verse is about Jesus. Uh, I'm, I'm reminded of uh, a dispute in the Middle Ages about what it really meant for David to knock on the door of a king because the, 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 the scripture seems to imply that it's like the rapping or the drumming on a door. And, you know, one of the medieval writers actually said, uh, well, uh, this passage uh, actually is talking about a drum and a drum is leather that is stretched over a wooden frame. And Jesus' flesh was stretched out on the cross. 
and therefore this is really a reference to Jesus, when in fact the reference was to David knocking on the door of the king. And that, that's what it was. We don't have to turn every single text into a text about Jesus. And in fact, this came up in the series that we were talking about, where uh, in, the, in the series of Preaching Christ in a Postmodern World, the, the class, the students in the class were very concerned about the tendency to spiritualize every single passage, and by that, to overlook the actual plain meaning of the text. And, and this, is, this is the response. This particular response came from Ed Clowney, and then Keller later said, yes, that's exactly the whole point of this whole course. And so uh, a, per, a person in the class raised the issue and said, uh, wait, aren't we going to be guilty of just spiritualizing every passage and therefore actually withholding the word from the flock when we actually ought to be revealing what the word actually says? And this was Ed Clowney's response. I'm quoting now from the lecture. He says, it all depends on what you mean by spiritualizing. If you mean getting the clue on what the whole story is about and fitting these little stories into the big story, I don't think that's spiritualizing. I think that's expounding. That's telling what it is really about. So I don't see, quote, finding Christ, unquote, as spiritualizing. Say you're preaching from the book of Lamentations. How would you spiritualize that? You've got to look at the agony. You've got to hear the cry of dereliction. You've got, you have to hear ultimately the book of Lamentations as Christ's cry from the cross. When you see that, you hear, you hear that. Is that spiritualizing? What is the cry? The cry to God is, why? Why? And of course, that's Christ's cry on the cross. And that's takes you to the depths of the Book of Lamentations. Well, you know, and that's, that's the end of the quote from Ed Clowney. That the, the cause for concern here is that the entire Book of Lamentations cannot be read as Christ's cry from the cross for the very simple reason that the author confesses his rebellion and acknowledges that God has broken my bones. That's from Lamentations 120 and 340. These are, are historical impossibilities that Lamentations is Christ's cry from the cross. And Jesus did not confess his rebellion from the cross, and he did not, you know, God did not break his bones. In fact, God made sure that Christ's bones would not be broken in order to fulfill the prophecy that not a bone of his shall be broken. But immediately after that example from Clowney, Keller piped up and said, with great confidence, I can say that is the subject of the course. We have to find Jesus in every single passage. And I'm telling you, Lamentations was about Jeremiah's concern for Jerusalem. It was not about Christ's cry from the cross. And you miss that, you miss the heart of the prophet for, the, for his country. If you say, well, let's just set aside what it seems to say and make it Christ's cry from the cross, you end up with hopeless contradictions within the scripture about what the meaning of any scripture is. And that's the real concern. Can you get sanctification done? by spiritualizing every cry, every passage to make it about Jesus and introduce contradictions to the text. And I don't believe that's how sanctification is accomplished. Well, I'd like to ask you about another example then, and one that's very well known uh, in, in sort of the, the Reformed world because there was a popular video on it. Are you telling me then that it's not fair to use David and Goliath uh, and show David as a type of the Christ that was to come? Is that... Is that hyper-spiritualizing? Is that an incorrect way to preach that text? 
Well, it's a, it's a very interesting question because Tim Keller actually does uh, address the story of David Goliath. And he, um, he's very critical of taking the story of David and Goliath and actually understanding it as the fact that with God on your side, you can overcome giants. And the fact is that David overcame the giant because he knew that God was on his side. And this is um, Keller writing in, uh, at, uh, it's an article on moralism. And he writes, quote, for example, look at the story of David and Goliath. What is the meaning of that narrative for us? Without reference to Christ, the story may be, and usually is, preached as, the bigger they come, the harder they'll fall. If you just go into your battles with faith in the Lord, you may not be real big and powerful in yourself, but with God on your side, you can overcome giants. So Keller says this as if that was not the story's plain meaning, and in fact mocks those who think otherwise. Yet this is exactly the message that God had for his people before they entered the promised land. He says, you, as in the Israelites, may not be real big and powerful in yourself, but with God on your side, you can overcome those giants. And we'll see that in Numbers 14.9. This is the, the very message that Keller despises, is the message of God himself delivered to Israel. And in their disbelief, they rejected the message, just as Keller instructs us to do. This is Numbers 13.9. Only rebel not ye against the Lord, neither fear ye the people of the land, for they are bred for us. Their defense is departed from them, and the Lord is with us. Fear them not. And the Lord said to Moses, How long will this people provoke me, and how long will it be ere they believe in me for all the signs which I have showed among them? So here, the Lord is threatening to disinherit them precisely because they would not believe the truth that they can defeat giants with God on their side. And what eventually happened was that David ran into battle knowing that he had the Lord on his side and was able to defeat a giant. Keller's error is that every single message of Scripture must be about uh, justification and Christ, and there can be no other meaning assigned to it. That is why he uh, proudly acknowledges that he does not preach the last two chapters of Esther and why he looks at David and Goliath and ridicules anybody who says, listen, the Lord promised in Numbers 14.9 that if they would trust in him, they could defeat the giants. The people refused, but David, when confronted with the same situation, thought, we can do this because the Lord is on our side, and he runs in and he fights and he wins this battle. Now, Keller... Keller says, and this is interesting because this is a direct quote from Keller in that article. The story is telling us that the Israelites cannot go up against Goliath. They can't do it. That, that's, that's Keller saying that. Yet that's not true. The shame of the Israelites, both in the case of Goliath and in the case of Numbers 39, was that they could go up against Goliath but would not. But David then tried, I mean, Keller tries to spiritualize it. And listen to what he says. Quote, when David goes in on their behalf, he is not a full-grown man, but a vulnerable and weak figure, a mere boy. He goes virtually as a sacrificial lamb, but God uses his apparent weakness as the means to destroy the giant. That's the end of the quote from Keller, and I'll just say emphatically that that is not true. 
David was a youth, it is true, but was not a mere infant or child. His ability to slay lions and bears was not merely from a distance, but in hand-to-hand paw wrestling, hand-to-paw wrestling. As the scripture says, And there came a lion and a bear, and took a lamb out of the flock. And when he rose against me, I caught him by his beard, and smote him, and slew him. That's First Samuel 17.45. That's David saying that I wrestled animals in hand-to-hand combat, or hand-to-paw combat and to Paul Calbat. And, and that's precisely what David planned to do with Goliath. This bear, this is bear wrestling and lion wrestling by a young man of great strength who has not yet been taught to fear his enemies. So you can't say that when David faced Goliath, he went in as a mere babe or a sacrificial lamb. He went in knowing that he'd been equipped for this purpose, to defeat giants with the skills that he'd been taught as he'd grown into a man. The fact is that God did not use David's weakness but rather used his known skills and abilities to win the day. To say this, in Keller's view, is self-righteousness. Because for Keller, every verse of Scripture must be about imputed righteousness. He believes it is self-righteous to conclude that the Israelites could have killed, and David did kill, Goliath with God on his side. Not in weakness, but in the strength God had given him. Keller cannot have it so. He is not content with what the Scripture says, but has to spiritualize everything. Fact is, David did not go in. Uh, I'll tell you that the, the Sunday school mythology is that David was a mere child when he faced Goliath. Wow, uh, this is. Uh, I think this is going to be an episode uh, that I'm going to have to listen to several times. <laughs> uh, that is uh, so deep and rich into the Word of God. Um, so here's here's what what's what we're going to do right now. Um, We've obviously taken up uh, uh, over an hour on just this part. So, uh, what I said, what I said at the beginning of the podcast, uh, that we're going to address our critics. <laughs> we're going to have to save that for next week. Um, but uh, so we're gonna we're gonna go ahead and uh, sign out uh, this episode. Um, let me ask uh, Brother Carlos and uh, Owen. If, um, do you guys have any, any final thoughts, anything to add? Uh, no, I'm good. I have a lot of questions though for the next episode. (laughs) All right. Um, well, um, what about you, Carlos? Yeah. Once again, I just wanted to thank brother Kaufman for joining us and for his willingness to come on the show and, um, uh, just very grateful for the opportunity that for this opportunity that he's uh, granting us to be able to share some of these things that we feel are very important regarding Tim Keller. And so um, we thank him. We thank you very much, Brother Kaufman. And uh, we do hope to have him, you know, to have you on the show again and uh, to discuss, you know, some of these topics into, in more depth. And so uh, we once again recommend our listeners to check out all of Kaufman's work and um, very highly recommended stuff. And uh, so thank you again. All right. Well, so that's going to be it for us today. Uh, Thank you guys and God bless you all. Have a good week.